Have you ever noticed that most popular songs are about three and a half minutes long? They say that is because all the way back to when they started putting out 78s, one side of a record could hold between three or four minutes, depending on if it was a literal one or the bigger one, and that even when they came to the 45s, it was about the same, three or four minutes, and that limited how long a song could be. Now, when CDs and other things came out later on, uh, I remember when I was in college in the mid-90s, they started having longer and longer songs. Anyone remember Champagne Supernova? It was like 27 minutes long. Never put that on when you were driving. You'd, you'd, you'd zonk out. But for the most part, we still have about three and a half minute long songs. And in the same way, there was a sort of built-in limit to how long you wanted your book to be when you were writing in the age of scrolls, whether in the Old Testament world with vellum or in the New Testament world with papyrus. And we see that limitation even in the Bible. In the, in the Jewish Bible, the book of Chronicles or the book of Samuel, it's essentially one book. We see it divided up because it took two scrolls. You got the first one, you got the second one. The same thing's true into the New Testament world. A papyrus scroll couldn't be longer than about 35 feet long or it became too bulky to carry. People throw their back out just trying to go to Bible study, that sort of thing. And so we see this kind of built-in limit. And that's why so many books of the Bible seem about the same length. There's kind of a cap or shorter. Now, this is a situation where we have one of those two-part books. Maybe the only in all of the New Testament. Broken up by two scrolls. Two chapters, kind of, of the same story. Now, it was just a scant 11 years ago that we opened up to Luke chapter 1 and began to study part 1 when we read these words. And I know you probably remember them from back then, but I'll read them again anyway. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, they delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. And we took eh, a year and a half to get through the Gospel of Luke. And I said to you, at some point, we'll also look at part two, the book of Acts. And you all thought I was kidding, but here we are. Now, it is important to remember that these things form a unit. In, in Luke's mind, it's, it's one thing, it's one story. We don't want to make it two separate from each other, even though in the order we have in the Bibles, John gets in the middle there. I remember in seminary, uh, I had an advanced Greek class. We were going to be doing a lot of deep translation and work in, in Luke and Acts. And Dr. David Turner, kind of an authority on these things, I remember him standing up and writing on the blackboard, L-A-C-T-S. He said, I don't want you to talk about Luke or Acts. I want you to talk about lacks, as if it's one document. And I raised my hand because I'm me, and I said, Dr. Turner, it's a good thing that Luke didn't also write Exodus, or we'd have to call it x lax And he didn't even say anything. He just sort of frowned under his beard and looked at me like, why do I have to deal with you? But I want you to remember lacks, Luke and Acts. We look at that intro to Luke, and it's talking about his goal throughout this whole literary endeavor. In fact, we see him kind of pick up there in the first couple verses. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, 
I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. It's clear from this introduction that Luke does not see the story of Jesus and the story of the church as separate, but rather as one and the same. In, in the beginning of Luke, he says uh, that he's going to lay out an orderly uh, order of events. And here in Acts, he said that he had started to relate those things that Jesus began to do and teach. And now he's going to continue into the church age, describing things that Jesus continued to do in the midst of his church. So Luke begins with the birth of Christ. Acts begins with the birth of the church. Luke shows us the planting of the seed when Christ himself was lowered into the earth and he said, it's good that I die and go into the earth that there would be much fruit born. And we see that fruit being born in the book of Acts. We see it begin to grow and bear fruit. Now with any book, we want to talk about the particulars, the author, the recipient. In this case, we say the author is Luke, even though nowhere in the Gospel of Luke or the book of Acts do we see the author identify himself. Going back to the early, early, early church, there's near unanimous agreement that Luke is the author. There's not really any other serious contenders. Luke, of course, was a companion of St. Paul. Maybe his most faithful and closest companion. At the very end of, of Paul's life, he's in prison in Rome. In 2 Timothy 4, we hear him say, pretty much everybody has left me except Luke. He was with him, with him to the end. He was with him through some wild stuff. We'll see partway through this book that it'll go from talking about what they did to about what we did, and that happens at the most crazy time. Luke got on board when things were really kind of going nuts, and he didn't get discouraged. He stayed. He stayed and endured with the Apostle Paul and helped him in his ministry to the Gentiles. And probably he's a Gentile himself, there are many reasons for that. I won't get into them now. If you're interested, give me a call. I'll talk your ear off. It seems to us that he is a Gentile, but one with a very, very deep understanding of the Old Testament. And if he is a Gentile, he's probably the only Gentile to have written any of Scripture. And maybe that, that knowledge of the Old Testament comes from the fact that he was a proselyte and became a Jew or was in the process of that or was what they call a God-fearer, someone who would still help the synagogue and worship the God of Israel. Or maybe it's just because Luke's so good at research, and that's what he tells us he's all about. He's about the research and that when he became a Christian, he said, I just have to know all the backstory, all that information. And he tucked it away in his heart and in his mind. At any rate, he wrote and wrote and wrote. He wrote more than a quarter of the New Testament. Most of us think of Paul as the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, right? No. If you don't count Hebrews as one of Paul's, Luke wrote more. A good deal more. He wrote more than anyone else in the New Testament. Not by book count, but by word count. And even if you do attribute Hebrews to Paul, they're like neck and neck here. With Paul just barely edging him out. So there's a lot of teaching that this man does, and he has a great impact on how the church moves forward after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was very well educated. We know that because Paul calls him a physician, and also because his Greek is amazing. 
Oh my goodness, do I love to read Luke's Greek. I'm going to tell you this, and, and I don't mean to shake your faith, and it shouldn't. It should embolden you. Some of the Greek in the New Testament, it's a little rugged. It's a little ragged. It's these guys who are just regular guys. Greek's not their main language. They're writing in Greek because that's the, the way to get it to the whole world. They're doing their best and it comes off a little clunky and that's good, that's okay. The Holy Spirit still kept them from all error. But it's nice to sit there and read the, the smooth stylings of Luke the doctor. We see that, that, that little passage I just read from the, the prologue, Luke 1, 1 through 4. It's actually studied by secular Greek uh, experts, people who, whose their deal is Hippocrates or Pythagoras or something, they all study it because it's the best Greek prologue that we know of anywhere. All four verses come together as one beautiful, complex sentence. And he, he masterfully, through the book of Luke and then into the book of Acts, we will see, unfolds what is really an adventure story more than anything else that keeps our attention while skillfully weaving the theological into shipwrecks and daring escapes and riots and miracles and tragic deaths and resurrections and all of this insanely exciting stuff that draws us to the book of Acts. And even though it's that kind of story, we can still relate. Because the heroes therein are fallible, big time. We see them uh, suffering, struggling with doubt and sin, losing their way, going astray, having to learn and relearn again and again that they must trust completely on God's grace if they will be able to continue walking on this narrow path and overcome to the end in the words of Jesus. So that's who's writing it. Dr. Luke, who is the recipient? Who is this guy who's most excellent Theophilus? Sounds a little like somebody from Bill and Ted, right? Maybe a skateboarder or maybe a government official. Most excellent. We see that twice more in the book of Acts. And both times, it's a governor being addressed. Most excellent Felix. Most excellent Festus. Theophilus is the kind of name you wouldn't be surprised to find in a Roman official. And so it's possible that he's that kind of guy. He's probably upper class at any rate, and he's probably wealthy. It's been suggested, and it makes sense, that maybe he's one of these patrons who is supporting Paul's ministry and here Luke's writing ministry out of his own wealth. And that's how he's helping to contribute to this early church endeavor, kind of commissioning an orderly and, and very complete chronological version of events taking from all the sources of the story of Jesus and then the story of the church from the ascension on to the present day. That's possible. And we see this thing unfolding across Europe and the Middle East and it draws us in. Now, now Theophilus may be a new convert to Christianity. He may be someone who's just on the cusp of converting. What makes me think that is that when we look back again to Luke 1, he says to him, Oh, excellent, Theophilus... It seems to me that I should write this down that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. The Greek word there for taught is katekeo. It's where we get our word catechism. Katechize. Catechesis. You know how you always say catechesis. Well, this, this is a term that means formal instruction to help bring someone into the faith. 
He has been looking into this Jesus thing. Maybe he's taken the first steps. Maybe he hasn't quite yet. But he is being brought in and his faith strengthened. And he's being given, hopefully, it's Luke's design, he'll be given certainty by these words. Now the question often comes up, is Theophilus a literal person? Like if you had a DeLorean, could you go back and like shake his hand? Or is he anybody? So it's kind of just the word for the reader. Luke's pet name for you. Theophilus means friend of God or loved by God. And so maybe this is just saying, you're loved by God. You need to know what God has been doing. I tend to think that's not the case. Theophilus was a common name, a common name for a Jew or a Gentile in that day. And it would just be confusing for it to not be an actual person named Theophilus, and it wouldn't really fit the tone. And it seems that this guy probably is a Gentile as well. I say that because in the book of Luke, things are explained that would not be explained if he was a Jew. Things are, it's be like if I wrote a letter to, to somebody and you found it, you didn't know who that person was, but I said, we went to the fireworks today. And in parentheses, by the way, on the 4th of July, Americans go and watch fireworks to celebrate our independence. You would know I wasn't writing to an American because they already know that. In the same way, there's a lot of stuff described to our benefit, since we also, most of us, that have, all of us that I know of are Gentiles, it explains for us some background. Seems like Theophilus is kind of on the outside a little bit when it comes to some of these practices. So he's, he's seemingly a Gentile. Luke is seemingly a Gentile. In a sense, an outsider writing to an outsider to bring him in. So even though Theophilus seems to be an historical person, he's also, in a sense, each of us. This is a great book. Luke and Acts together. I know a lot of people hand out Gospels of John. I'd like to hand out Gospels of Luke and Acts together and say, read this. Tell me if you want to get on this train. God is doing some amazing things, and he still is doing them. The purpose of the book seems to be a continuing account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, as he says in the prologue to Luke. That prologue is for the whole of it, not just for the Luke portion. And, and what's not happening here is a prescription for exactly how the church should look in every age and every place. That's the most common misuse of the book of Acts. Oh, see what they were doing there? We need to do it. They had all things in common, so everybody come here and give me your money or something to that effect. No, we, we know that they were in a very different context historically, geopolitically, culturally, and even within the book of Acts, we see different context means a different approach. And so Paul's not doing the same thing when talking to the, the philosophers on Mars Hill that Peter's doing when he's preaching in the temple. It's all given to context. And so this is not all a bunch of prescription for exact methodology. Rather, he's showing us that while we're living on this side of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit, Jesus is still empowering his church to proclaim his gospel and his kingdom to the ends of the earth. In fact, it's been suggested that rather than calling it the Acts of the Apostles, we maybe should call this book the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Acts of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, although that's a little clunky. And don't miss the fact that, especially this first passage here, it is saturated in Jesus. Eleven verses, every single one either gives us the words of Jesus or is a very specific, overt reference to Jesus. 
There's not one little section of this that's not soaked in Jesus Christ. So every single one of these verses reminds us that even when He ascends and disappears and a cloud hides Him, He doesn't disappear from the story. He doesn't disappear from the life of His church. He's still present with us. Verse 3, He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. It's just a little bring you up to speed thing. Like, you know, previously on The Walking Dead, these guys got eaten by zombies and these other guys got eaten by zombies. Now you're all ready to go. Here we go. It's just, you're up to speed now and we're going to pick up where we left off with a little bit of overlap. Jesus, for 40 days after his resurrection, would appear here and there and teach them. Teach them and prepare them and equip them. And, and he gives them many convincing proofs that he is alive. Convincing. This is the same Luke who said, I'm writing to you that I might give you certainty about the things that you learned when you were catechized. If your picture of faith or your notion of faith means that if you have certainty or if you are convinced of something, your faith is somehow less faithful, start over with that. Good evidence, solid evidence, knowledge increases and strengthens faith. It doesn't make it no longer faith. This is what Luke is trying to do. This is what Christ was doing for 40 days, giving convincing proofs, giving certainty to these people who needed to be built up because of the task that was ahead of them. Christianity is not based on abstract ideas or philosophies, but on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus doesn't spend 40 days saying, okay, let me walk you through the strategies, but says, let me strengthen you with convincing proof that I am He. I am alive. I tell you, this, this hit home for me, how convincing these proofs would be. When I was in Israel a year ago this month, I stood on this rocky beach in Capernaum, where it's not that long, and I walked up and down and said, I've walked where Jesus called James and John. I've walked now where, where Jesus called Peter and Andrew into ministry. And then we went less than two miles down the shore, and there we stood in the place we have good reason to believe. This is where Jesus appeared after the resurrection, and he was cooking fish, and he invited his disciples when they came in from their boat, come on in, eat with me. And on the very, it was almost an identical beach, and I thought, they sat right there, and they looked at him, there's no mistaking. I looked in the face of a, a friend of mine who was on the trip with me, here and here, it's the same guy. There's no way there was confusion here. And Jesus did that intentionally. He didn't want it to be nebulous. Well, you got to really take a leap of faith. No, look, it's me, guys. When Thomas wasn't present, when he showed them the holes in his hands and his side, he came back again. He said, look, stop doubting and believe. Convincing proofs. And in this book, the Holy Spirit continues rolling out the convincing proofs for the world to see. Jesus does this for 40 days. 40, of course, I'm going to talk about the number. It's a significant number in the Scriptures. It's always a number of uh, testing or trial or probation. It's almost like these guys are probationary disciples. All right, we'll bring you on for a period of time, and we're going to see if uh, you can make it or what's going on here. And so he brings them 
in slowly to the center of his will, his ministry, and now he is about to say, you're on your own, but not really. Because wait and see what's going to happen. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is precisely what he told them at the end of Luke, in Luke 24. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This, plus the double promise in our text today that they'll receive power and that they will be his witnesses, reminds them there is something that they can't bring to the table. There is a power that must fuel this ministry, and this has to continue in order for the church to be successful. It's, I mean, you and I, we can run by our own steam. We can, we can run by our own energy and power and passion. We can keep things going by our own ingenuity and ideas. But eventually, and usually at just the wrong moment, we'll run out of steam. We'll run out of fuel. Like how your DeLorean runs out of plutonium. You know what I'm talking about. He says you need to be fueled with something that doesn't run out, that never diminishes. I will give you wisdom that is never obsolete. Just wait for it. Just wait. Wait in Jerusalem. People, we are, God's people even, very loath to wait. We want to get on with it. We want to continue and do the thing. We don't want to wait. We don't want to, we don't want to hold out. We don't want to prepare. You see this amongst the disciples continually. They don't want to wait. We go all the way back to the Old Testament. Saul is supposed to wait until what? Nope, Saul, wrong Saul, Old Testament Saul. Wait for Samuel to come and make a sacrifice so that the attack can take place and they can go and defeat God's enemies as part of this, uh, this conquest of the Holy Land. Well, he waits for a while and he says, why am I waiting? I can make a sacrifice. So he goes ahead and gives it a try himself. What happens? That's the beginning of the end for Saul's time as king. The Holy Spirit is taken from him, and he is no longer the anointed one, and enter David. Or, or in the New Testament, Peter. He says, I, I don't want to wait anymore. I know he said, go to Galilee, and there you'll see me, but we've been here a while. I can't just, I can't wait. I'm going to go fishing. And he goes off and fishes, and thank God Jesus went and met them there anyway. But what if Peter had had that same impetuous nature here? What if he'd said, ah, forget it, I can't wait anymore. I got, I'm going to go fishing for men. That's what Jesus said we would do. We'd be fishers of men, and I'm going, to, I'm going to go start this thing off now. It would not have gone well. We need to be able to wait. Wait on him. Wait for him. I think we see this impetuousness and this lack of wanting to wait in the way pastors often bounce around from church to church. It's not exciting anymore. It's kind of worn off and, and we're in a rut or, or it seems like we're, we're spinning our wheels for a little while. I better get out of here. Or the way church members often will hop from church to church. Eh, this is boring now. What, what about we check out something new? And maybe God's working somewhere else. And that's why it, it's getting a little bit blasé around here. Rather than putting our nose to the ground, praying praying for revival, waiting on him, and serving him in the meantime, faithfully. See, often the same thing in, in church ministries. I, on one end, at the, at the 
back end of a ministry, sometimes it becomes a sacred cow. Right? We, we, it's like immortal, like a government program, and we can't ever let it die. But on the front end, oh, we tried it a little while. We tried reaching out to the neighborhood. Didn't work, so that's off the table. Oh, we tried that. Nah, it didn't. Wait on the Lord. Be faithful. Continue in prayer and patience until we see what God is going to do. My, my own desire... When I, it took me nine years to get my, my degrees I needed to get ordained in our denomination. And I remember about two-thirds of the way through, I said, oh my goodness, I'm so tired of working full-time here and going to school here and doing all this. I just want to be a pastor. And I started trying to make that happen. I'm making calls. I'm like, look, wow, I'm doing my schooling. Can I just pastor it? Wasn't ready. You see, you get a box of total preparation when you get your Master of Divinity. Oh, here you go. And then, I'm you know, you're still not ready, but I really wasn't ready. And I needed to wait. We need to be able to wait on the Lord. These guys, though, they think they've waited enough. So when they came together, the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time? This is on the Mount of Olives. I mean, we've waited long enough. We waited three and a half years in your ministry. We kept saying, we want this to happen. You kept saying, not yet, so we waited. You died, we waited. You rose again, we waited. Been 40 more days, and we've waited. We've waited enough. Is now the time. And you know, it's easy to scoff at this and say, how do you guys not get it yet? And I've done it myself. But realize, I mean, remember that, that passage Aaron read from Zechariah. It says the Holy Spirit's going to come and then there's all this language about Jerusalem defeating her enemies. The rabbis had always taught that a revived uh, activity of the Holy Spirit of God would accompany Israel's resurgence in political power. Maybe they're thinking about Luke 22 when Jesus said, I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There will be a time for that, but not yet. And frankly, Jesus reminds them it's none of their business when it's going to happen. What exactly is it they're asking for? Well, I think the key word here is restore. Restore the kingdom to Israel. The thing we used to have, when do we get it again? They're looking backward. How do we get back to our glory days? They still want that Davidic kingdom back when Israel was the dominant power and everyone respected them. They want the earthly glory of Israel. They want to kick Rome to the curb and in a sense become the new Rome in town. Ruling the world with an iron fist. And Jesus' disciples wanted this and they wanted it from the beginning and his inner circle, the worst offenders. James and John, oh, let's call on fire from heaven. Hey mom, see if you can get us those spots on the right and the left. Peter, pull out his sword. He's ready to fight. He's ready, he's ready for Israel to be restored to glory. It took faith, but they didn't understand. I think I grew up in a similar atmosphere. We were always stockpiling ammunition in the basement of our church in Essexville, Michigan. I'm kidding. No, but there was. It wasn't military might. It was political might. Evangelicalism in America on the whole in the 80s, what was the idea? Get enough people together, have enough power, and bend the will of the nation to our values. Jesus is not about that. Jesus is about one thing, and that is the heart. Changing from the inside out. Not changing from the outside imposed. That's what the Pharisees were all about. 
There will be a time that the Lord Jesus will come back on a horse of war, but they have to understand His timeline is the one we are following here. This is the same mistake that Jesus' followers are making here. Isaiah 49, we find out Jesus is telling them that there's, there's something much bigger. They want to they throw Rome to the curb and become the new superpower. They're thinking too tiny. Isaiah 49, we read, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So Jesus came down and they said, Yeah, God's now here with us. Let's do this. We want to come down too. We want to come down hard on Rome. We want to stomp on Rome. You know, when I was a little brat in the basement of the Baptist church there, there was no ammunition, but there, there were a lot of styrofoam cups. And I remember when no adults were around, me and the other boys, especially the pastor's kid, we'd take those styrofoam cups, put them on the ground, and stomp them and see how big a noise we could make. Just because little boys can be horrible. And, and, you know, I think about what makes that happen. You push down, and all that downward pressure goes out. And that's kind of what Jesus is teaching, right? This downward trajectory of the, of the incarnation, it's got to become the outward trajectory of the mission of the church. We can't want to come down on everyone. We rather need to go out and bring them the gospel, we need to go out and bring the kingdom, not with force, but with love and mercy. So instead of going back to the heyday of Israel, Jesus has given them the job that Israel originally had to be a light that shines and shines out to all nations. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus actually gives a basic outline of this book right here before he takes off, literally. Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7. Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 through 12. To the ends of the world, chapter 13 through the end. This is what we're going to see unfold. Acts begins with a command not to leave Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish world. It ends with Paul in Rome, the center of the pagan world. And Rome is where all the roads lead out to the ends of the world. This is a story of the Great Commission. And it is successful. To the point where Paul, not long after this, can write to the Philippians, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Even, they're, they're whispering about Jesus in Caesar's laundry room and in his kitchen and in his stables. They cannot stop the spread of the gospel. And we see it begin here in the book of Acts. And just like life today, often as we read through this, this story, it seems, it seems almost random. You know, it does not follow the three-act neat structure you'd see in a fictional work. They go here, they go here, they go here. You, you look at the maps of Paul's missionary journals, it looks like a mess sometimes. Because life is unfolding. And yet this story, this book of Acts, reminds us that God has a plan in this messy history as it unfolds because he's the one unfolding it. And that's true today as well. If you turn on the TV and look at, oh, what a mess. How do we get here? God is at work in this. Find yourself, find the church, find the place where we continue 
where we continue. There's, there's a, a church network called Acts 29. And it's not because they've written the 29th chapter of Acts and added it to the Bible. It's because they say to themselves, this is what we're doing. We're continuing this same work of bringing the gospel to the ends of the world. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is the ascension. We already talked about it at the end of Luke. This detail here, though, about the cloud, this is not a regular cloud made out of water vapor. This is the cloud of God's Shekinah glory. We've seen it many times through the Scriptures. The cloud of God's glory that came down from heaven and led the people The cloud of His glory that then went into the tabernacle and into the holy place and into the holy of holies. When God said, do not let the sons of Aaron come in willy-nilly because I am in the cloud above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. The same cloud of the presence of God and His glory that came back out of the temple in Ezekiel 10 went back up into heaven. The same cloud that we see present at the transfiguration in Luke 9. We read, remember, Jesus is there. He's he's revealed to them in his divinity. Moses and Elijah are there. And we read, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. But Jesus was with them, so they need not be afraid. And now he is up, obscured by this cloud. But Christ's presence and the cloud of God's presence isn't going to be gone forever In the very next chapter, just ten days later, it will now infill every believer so that that very same presence of God that was once in the Holy of Holies is in you and in me. It was there shining out so that it would draw people from all nations into Jerusalem. Well, now we're going out from Jerusalem, all of us carrying that presence of God and His glory with us. And finally... While they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Now, two angels, they're they're men in white robes asking, Why are you looking at what you're looking at? We've seen that before. On Easter... This is, what Luke, this is what Luke relates. They looked in the tomb. The women looked in the tomb. It was empty. The stone was rolled away. And we read, While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood before them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. The women were looking down into the earth. The men were gazing up into the sky. And the angels are saying, Neither of those is right. Don't look back. When are we going to restore? Don't look up. Don't, don't gaze down. It's time to start looking ahead. It's time to start looking forward. There's a real tension in these instructions. Because you've got a huge job to do. Almost so big it seems absurd, right? This job he gives them. So laziness is out. And they've, they've got to wait at the same time. We've got to wait but we got to start. we got to work, but we have to hold off until God has empowered us. They've already had these 40 days of instruction. Now there will be 10 more days of prayer and patience and seeking God's face. This tension is so valuable to us in the church today. To be able to say, hold on, stop the machine for a minute. we got to make sure we are seeking God. We are in prayer. We are coming together not just to work, 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 do, 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 keep everything going, Rather that we are seeking God's face and He is leading us 
He is leading us through his indwelling of us through his word and illuminating its meaning to us. He is leading us forward. Eventually, if we continue spinning on our own power, we'll fizzle out like a fire-starved of oxygen. The other extreme is simply just to sit there like the disciples with our head in the clouds saying, I wonder what God will do next. But the scriptures teach patient endurance. Waiting and enduring. Waiting while serving. And this tension, we see this tension in the ministry of Adoniram Judson. He goes to Burma. He gets there and he starts translating the Bible. What happens? Nothing. It's years before he has a single convert. Five years before he baptizes anyone. And then after a lifetime of preaching, translating, two years on death row in a Burmese prison, the death of three wives and seven kids, what does he have to show for it? A small handful of Christian believers. Well, if you have ever been here in the afternoon, you know that small handful has turned into many, 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 many Burmese Christians. He was patient. He endured. He waited and he worked. He prayed and he sought. And he trusted God's time. He didn't say, hold on, Jesus, is now the time already? I have been at this too long. This same Jesus will come back. This is not given as a threat. You notice that? You ever hear people try that stuff? Is that what you want to be doing when Jesus comes back? This same Jesus will come back. This isn't threatening language. It's this same Jesus who you know, this Jesus who taught you as you walked down the road together, who slept next to you as you traveled through Galilee and Judea, who reclined at the table with you, who comforted you when you were frightened, who rebuked you when you were in the wrong, and then restored you after that. This same Jesus who loved you so much, he laid down his life and died for your sins. This same Jesus will come back the way he left. This is encouraging. If you're a believer, the book of Revelation should not be scary to you. It should be a comfort. And it should give you hope and inspire you to work and patiently endure. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. He says, I will give you power from on high. You will be my witnesses. And he's going to come back, this same Jesus, and say, brothers, sisters, how do we do? When he comes back, we do not want to be found idle. We do not want to be found working hard, but by our own strength and our own theories and our own ideas. Rather, we want to be found faithful. Serving him for his glory, not ours. Not out of fear, but out of love. This is indeed an encouraging way to start the book of Acts. He's coming back. Let's get started. Oh, we got to wait. Sometimes there is a pause. Remember that pause in the plains of Jericho before they were able to go into the promised land. Let's hear the law again. Let's hear the gospel again. Let's hear the word again. Let's pause. We're pausing now in the moment. We're waiting. And we're going to go out those doors and into the mission field. Bringing the presence of God with us. Looking ahead. We're not going to go out by God's grace with our head in the clouds so heavenly minded we're of no earthly good like those men staring and gazing into the sky. We're not going to go looking down at the earth oh, too earthly concerned so that we're not even thinking about God's kingdom. We're not going to be looking back. Well, we'll get back to the glory days. Rather, we're going to be looking ahead to the glory of God, knowing that when the Holy Spirit is at work, the acts of the Holy Spirit in our midst 
will bring the gospel to the very ends of the earth for the glory of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Acts, and we look forward to seeing how you were at work in the midst of the early church. Lord, we know they were concerned and worried and frightened, and that you came with a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire and the Holy Spirit, and they knew you were with them just as you had been when you were with them in body. Lord, we know you are with us now. You know, we know you leave with us and you go out with us into our lives. Lord, we pray you would work through us, speak through us, that we would be your children, your ambassadors, your witnesses, here in Lansing, in Michigan, and all of the United States, and to the ends of the earth. In your holy name we pray. Amen.